Good evening, friends. Today marks the 10th episode of the Shakespeare saga. Um, so, actually, I ended up finding an older version of the 12th night, um, one of the original copies. So, of course, the, the playwright, the scripting is the, pretty much the same. But just the excitement of seeing the older copy is definitely um, a great thing. So this program is sponsored by the Zendiz app and the Wagon um, platter. Um, please, for more info, go to the website. Um, other sponsors, um, Best Online Banking by Barrow Bank. Best um, International Money Transfers by GPay. Um, and here is the continuation of Twelfth Night. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and read um, the introduction. It's a little bit long, but I think it would definitely be, it would summarize what it is and what the characters are it kind of gives a good gist about the story itself so here's the introduction literary history of the play the earliest known edition of the 12th night is that of the first folio 1623 in which the plays of shakespeare were for the first time collected we have no knowledge of the text on which this edited edition was based, but there are a few passages that bear distinct marks of being corrupt, and not many in which the emendations occur preferable to the excited existing text. This means that settling the date at which the play was written are to be found in references to a contemporary writer in phrases in the play which point to the contemporary event of writings and the characteristics of construction, versification of thought that mark a particular stage in the author's development. The Palladestamia of Maris, published in 1598, contains a list whether complete, complete or only partial, we cannot tell, of Shakespeare's works up to that time. In this list, Twelfth Night is not included, so that it was presumably unknown to Maris. We may therefore be reasonably sure that it had not been acted before the close of 1601. The diary of John Manningham, a barrister, which covers the period from January 1602 to April 1603, relates that he saw the play of Twelfth Night, or what you will, performed on February 02, 1602. The extract runs as follows. At our feast, we had a play called Twelfth Night, or what you will, much like the comedy of errors of Menachemi of in Plautus, but most like and near to that in Italian called Ingani, a good practice it in it to make the steward Liu 
his lady widow was in love with him by contrifying a letter as from his lady in general Trimus telling him what she liked best in him and prescribing his gesture and smiling his apparel and and then when he came to practice making him believe they took him to be mad there can be no possible doubt that shakespeare's plays is here referred to the only discrepancy being that olivia is called a widow whereas it was her brother for whom she was in mourning this extract therefore taken in conjunction with the omission of twelfth night from merris list list proves that the play had been written sometime before the beginning of 1602 but what it probably has not been acted at the end of 1601 it is of course possible that the omission from merris's list was accidental but manningham certainly writes as it were as a new play steven stevens who was an adept at discovering attacks on shakespeare in ben jonson detects a sneer at which plays in a passage from every man out of his humor which was acted in 1599 so that if his surmise he, he accepted the date of 1290 would have to be moved back but apart from the other reasons of for looking on johnson's play as the earlier the passage in question could scarcely be regarded by an impartial judge as referring to 1290 the misinterpretation would be too gross the words are in act 3 scene 2 The argument of his comedy might have been of some other nature of a duke to be in love with a countess and that the countess to be in love with the duke's son and the son to love the lady's waiting maid some much cross wooing we need not hesitate to dismiss the piece of evidence our original belief is strengthened to the farewell dear heart since i must need be gone act 2 scene 3 a song which first appeared in the book of iris 1601 though the catch where it occurs might possibly have been interpolated in the play two other passages may be referred to in this connection but only to be dismissed as affording little if any real evidence the new map with the augmentation to the indies was supposed by stevens to refer to the may stevens refer to the map of lincoln's voyages the english edition of which appeared in 1598 mr cute however has shown that the map referred to was one of which copies are ex- dent bound up in the first edition of hercules voyages 
but which records discoveries to known earlier than 1596. Mistress Maul's pictures, if it refers to Maul Caspers, but have been inserted in the play a good deal later than 1602. But the reference might easily have been interpolated as topical, allusion after the play was written. It is quite uncertain whether Maul Caspers is alluded to, and this certainly could not be regarded as valid evidence against Manningham's diary. So far that the evidence proves conclusively that the play was acted as early as February 1602 and affords very strong presumption that it was written earlier than 1597. The rest of the internal evidence confirms that the conclusions, the technical characteristics of the early plays are wanting. The verse structure and the use of prose alike belong to the middle period of Shakespeare's work. The matured skill of the practice playwright is everywhere evident, while the light-heartedness of the buoyancy of the spirit is which it is written are quite different from the gave grave cheerfulness that marks even the liveliest of the later plays. Therefore, the final conclusion as the Twelfth Night was certainly written not later than the end of 1601, and probably not earlier than 1597. Sources of the Plot It was the habit of all playwriters of Shakespeare's time to adopt freely the work of their predecessors in constructing their own plays. They rewrote plays that had already been acted or published. They appropriated the plots and characters of other authors, English or foreign. In short, they used any material which came to hand without any regard for any notion of literary property. Thus, some of Shakespeare's plays are earlier plays rewritten, and we can usually find a novel or a chronicle form from which he derived the leading situations of the others. Sometimes he followed his original closely, making merely an occasional improvement. Sometimes he borrowed his main plot and constructed an underlot of his own that entirely changed the general effect. Sometimes he, he ex extracted, so to speak, the skeleton out of the story that had never been really alive and clothed it with flesh and blood, and breathed new life into it until it became living, beautiful human. Always whatever the extent of his borrowings might have been. When the play left his hands, it was something new, different, instinct with a genius that none but Shakespeare could have imparted to it. There never was a writer whose materials were more deliberately stolen or one whose creations were more original, more individual, more unmistakably stamped as the hard work of this supreme master. The central ideas of the play of Twelfth Night were by no means new. The girl masquerading as a man was a common device. Shakespeare himself had already used it at least three times in The Two Gentlemen of Verona, in The Merchant of Venice, and in As You Like It. The confusion arising from personal likeliness 
he had borrowed before the comedy of errors. The leading features of his main plot had already been presented in Italian in the novel of Bandello and the play of G.I. Incanati in English in Barnabé Rich's story of Apollonius and Scylla and in various other modified forms by numerous writers. But the combination of the main plot with the underplot in Shakespeare's own, it was he who imparted the individuality to every one of his characters. The Twelfth Night, in as distinctively as fundamentally Shakespeare, as if every conception, every incident, and every character had been without any precedent, precedent in literature. Whether Shakespeare had actually read or seen on the stage a story or play that embodied the main features of the leading plot of Twelfth Night, we cannot say with absolute certainty that he knew the plot had been used before for stories or plays is beyond a doubt. And there is at least a very strong presumption that he deliberately adopted it for his own purposes, one or more of the pieces mentioned above. Manningham, in his diary, speaks of the resemblance of Twelfth Night to an Italian play that he calls Ignani, The Deceived. Probably he had in mind a play of that name, Gonzaga, 1592, in which a girl masquerades as a man under the name of Cesare and is consequently mistaken for her brother. But there is little further resemblance between Ignani and Twelfth Night. Possibly, however, Manningham was thinking of another play called G.I. Ignati, The Cheated, the likeness of which the two Twelfth Night is much more marked. Here we have the heroine disguising herself as a boy, taking service with a man with whom she is in love, wooing on his behalf the woman with whom he is in love and winning the lady's love for herself the appearance of the scene of the brother confusion between brother and sisters marriage of the lady to the brother subsequent discovery of the whole blunder and general joyful marrying of uh, of everybody this italian play was almost certainly based on bondello's story referred to above. It is by no means sure that Shakespeare knew G.I. Ingnati, probably he did. The literary culture of the day was drawn from Italy. Italian words are rather abundant in this play, and Shakespeare was certainly well acquainted with a good deal of Italian literature. Though his knowledge of it may have been derived almost entirely from translators, still the story of Apollonius and Scylla is quite near enough that Twelfth Night we have served as the dramatist's model without his going further afield. Other hand, Barnaby Ritchie was may very possibly have biased I'm sorry, based his story on Bondello's. It 
is important only to notice that the likeness between Twelfth Night and J.I. Ignati does not prove that Shakespeare was actually acquainted with the Italian play, although just as the name of Caesar and Ignani suggest the later as a direct source of the English play. The occurrence of the name Malivalti in J.I. Ignati looks as it were the original Shakespeare's Malvolio. The story of Apollonius and Scylla presents the same leaning features. Though some of the details vary, Apollonius is the Duke of Constantinople. Scylla follows him for love and enters his service as a page. The lovemaking across purposes goes on in the same way. Scylla's brother Silvio appears and expects for her certain grossness incident from which Shakespeare almost alone of Elizabethans successfully avoids. The story work out just as do Twelfth Night and Gia Ignati. Thus we find that Shakespeare's main plot in a is a story the principal features of which were common property. While two extant versions, one in English and one in Italian, bear a close resemblance in many details to the particular version used by Shakespeare and in any other Italian variant. Having otherwise much less resemblance to Twelfth Night, the heroine adopts the name of Caesar as Viola adopts that of Cesario. We have fairly concluded that, though not with certainty that Shakespeare had read one or perhaps all of them. At any rate, he did not construct the main incident out of his inner consciousness, as if he actually did come across one of those versions. We may quite be quite certain that he would, he would have had no scruple, whatever, about making precisely as much use of it as suited his convenience, but there is no evidence that the underplot in which Malvolio in, is the central figure has been borrowed. The intervening of the main plot and underplot is entirely original, and every one of the characters is of Shakespeare's own creation. The name of the play has no obvious connection with the story. Probably it is the intended merely to convey that the comedy was suited for a production of Twelfth Night, a feast set apart for mirth and revels. Possibly it was specifically, specially intended for production on the Twelfth Night, 1602, just before it was witnessed by Manningham. The subtitle, What You Will, is precisely paralleled by the name of As You Like It. Called, call it Twelfth Night, or anything else you please. It appears that some people did please to call it Malvolio instead, as that name has been written in the copy owned by Charles I. Twelfth Night appears to have maintained its popularity. It was witnessed twice by Samuel Pe Pepe. It was adopted in 1703 by Burnaby. After the usual dis degrading methods of the Restoration dramatists, when they altered Shakespeare's, Kimball in the, his day acted 
to part of Malvolio, and it continues to hold the stage at present day. Characters of the play, Professor Dowdit, has divided Shakespeare's work into four periods. In the first, the dramatist was learning how to work. In the second, he had mastered the method and attained the high water mark in the simpler forms of production. His mood throughout this period being buoyant, vigorous, and for the most part glad. In the third stage, the problems of life had assumed a more grim and complex aspect. To this period belong the great tragedies and the two miscalled comedies of all well. That ends well and measure for measure. In the fourth, he had fought his way through the valley of the shadow and emerged into a clear and serene atmosphere. The mirthfulness of his earlier years and the gloom of his third period having given place to calm and tender cheerfulness. The plays of his time were are neither tragedies nor comedies proper, but romances. A degree of doubt attaches to the dates of several plays, and it is, of course, obvious that the prevalent mood of one period may have been passing mood of another, that the dramatist may have fallen into a temporary gloom or shaken off his depression or horror reached forth by anticipation to the final sense of calm elevation. But roughly speaking, the, this classification of the plays is borne out of by the general evidence of date. In 1601 and 1602, Shakespeare was passing from the joyous to the tragic mood, and Twelfth Night may be reckoned as the last comedy of the second stage. At a glance at the list of plays which were written probably from 1596 to 1601 will at once reveal the close kinship of mood which pervades them. Julius Caesar is the only tragedy that falls in the closing year. There are two preeminently boisterous comedies, The Taming of the Shrew and The Merry Wives of Windsor. In all the others, pure comedy and romance are combined, whether the romance of war or the romance of love. These the Henry IV, Henry V, the Merchant of Venice, as you like it, much ado about nothing. And Twelfth Night. This is the primary characteristic of every one of those plays the romance may predominate. In one, the comedy is another. The humor may be more rollicking when Falstaff appears. The romance may verge on tragedy in the story of hero. The ingredients, in short, may be mixed in slightly varying proportions. But to vary the metaphor, the keynote of each is the same. An intense and thorough enjoyment of life and health and vigor, a readiness to take things as they come, a freedom from over-anxiety about the moral, an absence of psychological or metaphysical riddling. By way of illustration, not of definition, one might compare the plays of this period with the novels of Walter Scott, and with less accuracy the plays of the next period with novels of George Eliot. It is always rather 
surprising to know that George Eliot regarded Scott as her master, but it becomes less so when we remember that the Shakespeare who drew Hamlet was the same who had drawn Rosalind, intimately associated with his keen physical vitality is the somewhat astonishing impulsiveness which marks so many of the leading characters throughout the group of plays. Meditation, hesitation, carefully laid schemes, elaborate reasonings are abundant in the later works. Here, the moment inspiration is acted upon with a habitual pomipititude that would take our breath away if we did not feel it. To be so supremely natural is these radiant damsels and their lovers, whose brains are as active as their muscles, and whose muscles are trained to perfection. It takes Rosalind five minutes to make up her mind to assume male attire and tramp off to Arden. Portia's device is no less quickly conceived and swiftly carried out. None of these heroines seem to have a qualm about the possible complications that may result, and the consistency and thoroughness with which heroes, heroines, and minor characters as well fall in love at first sight is so is of the essence of the temper of these rom romances. Rosalind and or Orlando, Celia and Oliver see each other once and never a doubt enter a mind of one of them again. Phoebe falls in love with the supposed Ganymede at her first interview. Claudio notices Hero for the first time and forth forthwith purposes to marry her. Viola is in love with Orsino three days after their first meeting, Olivia falls in love with Cesario and Sebastian with Olivia before they have known each other for five minutes. And they are all perfectly ready to act on this sudden inspiration with the magnificent confidence, eminently characteristic of the time when men habitually had to make up their minds to deal with sudden emergencies on the spur of the moment. But the spirit of adventure was rife, and a considerable recklessness coupled with a ready hand and a ready tongue were essentials of success, so that without them romance and comedy were like enough to give place to swift tragedy in real life no less than on the stage. When we come to compare details, we find a variety of resemblances in the stage devices of at least three of the comedies. In As You Like It, The Merchant of Venice and the Twelfth Night, the plot turns to the heroine passing herself off as a youth. Phoebe falls in love with Rosalind, and Olivia does with Viola. Feste is a more faster brain touchstone as Lancelot Gabo is a kind of clownish feste. Lorenzo is first cousin of Orsino, and Sebastian is quite akin to Orlando. And in each of these three plays, we may particularly remark that it is not the wisdom of man, but the wit of a woman that controls the ultimate destinies of the actors. 
before turning to the detailed examination of the characters in Twelfth Night, we may remark certain general characteristics in the construction of the play. The whole piece is notably harmonious. The same spirit runs through it from beginning to end. There are many passages of the humor waxes somewhat boisterous when Sir Toby is in his cups, where the jesting is never so broad that it jars with the poetry. The poetry is never so serious that it puts us out of tune from the reverie. The most passionate passages are tinged with humor from the unconscious irony of the situation. The most extravagant scenes are free from any taint of grossness. Comedy and romance are more completely blended. The piece is, so to speak, more thoroughly as one plane all through than in any other of the series, with the possible exception as you like it. The ease with which the story runs on, the technical mastery of the construction, whereby fresh situations are perpetually evolved without any sense of strain, the entire freedom from patchiness, the unfailing liveliness, the manner in which the attention is repeated on the action from the first to last, mark the piece as the production of a past master in the craft of playwriting. By laying the scene in Illyria, the dramatist secures a freedom in the setting of the story which would hardly have been obtainable if he had selected a more definite geographical locality. But while every part is made to fit into every other part so that everything appears to turn out precisely as in must have happened, Shakespeare was at no pain to ensure that there should be no small slips, nothing that adverse critic might find to make merry over if he looked for it hard enough. He does not appear he, he have given Twelfth Night as detailed the, an accurate revision. Orsino is a count or duke at pleasure. Malvolio reads Maria's epistle and proceeds to refer to particular letters as giving the authorship, although they have not occurred in it all. Orsino says that the Cesario has been in his service three months on the fourth day, after Viola landed in Lularia. Shakespeare did not take the trouble to correct the inconsistencies, for the simple reason that no audience would notice them. They have no effect, the unresemblances of a story that they allowed the twelfth night Extravagance in which there is no demand for rigid realism. Similarly, Shakespeare felt himself at perfect liberty to introduce the fairy court in a midsummer night's dream, or him as you like it, without any intention of implying that him of Oblivion are to be met in the flesh of visitors to the woods of Arden or Attica. Shakespeare would fare but ill at the hands of conscious Ticus, critic of the school, which maintains the art 
is a photographic reproduction of natural objects. The rest is the characters, which I will read tomorrow in episode 11. So thank you for uh, um, thank you for this part right here, I guess, and appreciate the listens. And so continuing tomorrow, um, that's about it.